Changing Faith podcast. I am Michael Hidalgo, and I'm thrilled about our guest today. And uh, before we get there, uh, a couple of things just to remind you of. First, if you would like to email me with any questions that you have, subjects that you would love to hear addressed, ideas for resources or people to be interviewed, you can email me at michael at michael-hidalgo.com. And we will do our best to engage with you as we continue to learn about our next steps together. Because that's why we launched this podcast. We wanted it to be a place where we can hear from and learn from others about what our next steps might look like. Uh, It might be an action step for us, something that we can go out and do. It might be a question for us to consider. Um, And it may just simply be adjusting the way that we look at the world day in in day out. And I can tell you that our guest today has been unbelievably helpful for me in helping me and challenging me to take next steps and seeing things from new perspectives and and growing in my understanding of living a more full life in our world. And I know she will be helpful for all of us. So I couldn't be more grateful to welcome the Reverend Dr. Paula Stone Williams to the Changing Faith podcast. Paula, welcome. Always seems funny to me to hear all those titles before my name. <laughs> right, because I don't call you Reverend Dr. Paula no, Stone you, uh, Williams. No. I call you Paula. Right, just my, only my children are forced to call me Reverend Dr. Paula <laughs> Stone. <laughs> well, I mentioned Paula several episodes ago when uh, I told the story about when I felt like I was the older brother with the older brother, and now we are here together today. And so we're going to jump right in. And so, Paula. Tell us a bit about who you are, what might be important for us to know about you right out of the gate. I think it's important to know right out of the gate that I'm a transgender woman and also a pastor coming out of an evangelical background. So I grew up in the church. My father was a pastor in the fundamentalist church. I went to Bible college and seminary and became very involved in the evangelical church and became a leader in it. For 25 years, I was the CEO of one of the nation's larger church planting organizations. It wasn't large when I started. We only worked in New York City, and we had a budget of about $160,000. By the time I left um, several decades later, uh, we had a budget of $4 million, and we were working throughout the United States and had just begun working in Asia and Europe. So that was always my main gig. But then I was also a bit of a Renaissance person, so I also taught in three different seminaries. I was on the preaching team of two different megachurches, one in Philadelphia, one in northern Colorado. I also was the editor-at-large of a Christian leadership magazine that had been published every Sunday since 1866, whether it should have been or not. (laughs) It's also a weekly columnist for that magazine. Not nearly as bold as I am nowadays in my writings. So I always did a whole bunch of different things and enjoyed all of it. And then when I transitioned to become Paula, pretty much all of that stuff stopped. Hmm. So tell us about when that stopped, because I've I've heard this story, and it was an extremely painful and and, and somewhat disorienting time for you um, in that transition, not only from transitioning, but also with how you were treated by people that you had known for decades. Yeah, I... I think it was exacerbated by the fact that I thought I was going to make it through my life without transitioning. But um, if you're transgender, um, they call it gender dysphoria in the DSM-5. It's the highest uh, suicide attempt rate of any diagnosis in the DSM. Wow. Um, 41%. And a new study came out recently that had a much lower number, 
40 percent. Mm. Um, it really is not a good diagnosis. And I got to the point where I realized I was likely to be one of those statistics and still was fighting it and then felt called to it. So the decision to transition was actually pretty fast. Once I finally got to that point, it was pretty quick. So I came out to my um, couple of our board members privately, and then I came out to um, the CEO who had taken my place. And um, at that point, wasn't 100% sure I was transitioning, but I was beginning to think it was likely. And that's why I felt like I needed to tell them, because I was beginning to think that it was a heavier possibility. And so I planned to stay with the ministry for two more years. I was going to wait two more years to transition, uh, but I was gone within seven days. And that was a bit of a surprise. Uh, I was asked by our executive committee to inform the rest of our board on Christmas Eve. A lot of our board mm-hmm. members were megachurch pastors, and so they were doing you know, 10 and 12 Christmas Eve services. And I had to tell them in between all of that. Um, the reality about me. It was not a particularly good time. Uh, it was actually eight months later that I came out as transgender. That was so traumatic in having lost my job that way um, that I wanted to give it one more shot to see if I could make it, although I knew my days in that denomination were over. A lot of people were very, very angry with me for not having told them. But I have to remind those people, well, once you did know, and at that point you did not know that I was going to transition because I was giving it another hard six-month try to see if I could not, you still wouldn't let me in your pulpit. You weren't going to let me teach at your church. You weren't going to let me teach in your seminary. Let's be honest, I was out just for admitting I had the diagnosis. That was devastating. And you shared, you talked about the diagnosis uh, several months ago, as I recall, and I found it fascinating the way that you helped us understand it, and it unlocked a lot of understanding for so many of us as you talked about what gender dysphoria, according to the DSM-5, is. And so could you help us even understand that as we continue together? Yeah, it's a rare condition. About 0.3% of the population experience it, and that's worldwide. So it's something that is pretty unusual, and we're really rather fortunate that the uh, lesbian and gay community has kind of adopted us and brought us in because the rights we have, we have because our lobby is larger than it normally would be. But we know that its cause uh, is prenatal. Um, There are some indications in recent studies that it might be genetic, although that is still pretty much up in the air. We know it has nothing to do with how you were parented. It's not a parent's fault. It's, it's prenatal. And the human body uh, becomes either male or female at the end of the first trimester. So every fetus begins as a female, and then at the end of the first trimester, half of us get an androgen wash that turns the fetus male. But the brain doesn't make its connection to the body that's been developed until the beginning of the third trimester. So what happens is that something goes on in that second trimester that causes the brain to not ever make a connection to the body that's been created. And it's actually one of several conditions where this happens. So it's not just transgender people. Another also rare condition is where people's brains don't develop a connection to a particular limb of the body, an arm or a leg. 
it's experienced as a foreign object, and it's very difficult for them to deal with that. One of the answers to it that they don't do in the United States but do in other nations is actually remove that limb. Now, if you or I were to lose a limb, we would have a phantom limb, and that would, in fact, enable us to be able to function with a prosthesis. But in their case, once that limb is gone, the brain finally is happy. The brain is at peace because it's basically Mm -hmm. saying, I told you that was not ever supposed to be there because the brain had never made a connection to that limb of the body. Well, the same thing is true for us. The brain has never made a connection to the body that's been developed. And so the brain always feels like it's female, even though the body is very clearly male. So you get one layer of dissatisfaction with that when you're very young. But generally when you're young, particularly if you're in a world that kind of forces you to live as a boy, you can do so. You don't like it. Like I often say, um, I didn't hate being a boy. I just knew I wasn't one. But then once you hit puberty and testosterone begins its work in you, well, now it becomes a crisis because testosterone is a powerful drug that makes major changes in the body and in the brain. And so you become even more in distress at that point in time. And so you talked about the percentages of uh, men and women in the transgender community who men living as though their brain saying you're not a man, women saying you're not a woman, and the high suicide rates. Right. And then you, you mentioned briefly, you said, this was something that I w- was circling. I don't know if that's the exact quote that you used, but talk about wh- what was that like for you? You lived decades um, w- with this reality and always having, did you have to stuff it down? What was it like? Did you feel like you were never yourself? What was that like for you day in and day out? There was never a day that it was not an issue. There probably was never a six-hour period that it did not come into my mind. And when I think back about that now, it's like, great day. How was I as productive as I was? Because I was, in fact, very productive. But that's how I dealt with it. I dealt with Mm. it by running away from it, by being an overachiever, by not leaving myself any quiet moments, by making sure that I didn't have to think about it. Because when I did, I knew that there were no real good solutions There were no real good answers that no matter what course I took, it was going to be difficult. And so I ran away from it until I just couldn't run away from it anymore. Which is a great point to observe. You dealt with it by staying busy and by being productive. Uh, And I've heard, I don't know who said it, but that busyness is a drug. Oh, you bet. And, and drugs are often connected to escapism. And so the question is not about the addiction, but about what are we escaping? Yeah, David White says that we are addicted to speed mm. in our culture. And that our addiction to speed is because of our unwillingness to look at the realities that we have not ever dealt with. You know, back in the 1970s, Ernest Becker wrote a book that was listed as one of the best books in psychology in the 1970s. And the book was called The Denial of Death. And Mm. Becker said that our fixation with speed and with busyness was because as a culture, we could not even deal with death. He even pointed out that with Freud, Freud didn't want to deal with death. And Freud's ego was so massive that Freud himself had to be the solution to man's problems. So he said man's basic problems was sexual repression because a good therapist can fix your sexual repression. 
said the two times in his life that he fainted was when there were serious conversations about death. Wow. Because the realization is that man's basic problem is not sexual repression. Our basic problem is that we lose ourselves before we ever even really find ourselves. Our basic problem is that we die. And in our culture, we don't acknowledge that as a part of the journey. We look at death as something to be avoided, not as something that is a part of the process of existing as a being. And yet one of the central invitations of Jesus is come and die with me. Yep. And as a matter of fact, he says, don't even say you're one of my followers if you're not willing to, to be crucified, which is fascinating. Which is why a whole lot of people are interested in being a part of the church, but not particularly interested in following Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I think, um, you know, so th- this podcast is about helping people take their next step. And so maybe if you're listening, y- you might be actually at this point in between appointments and you've stacked your calendar so that you are going to be running until you collapse into your bed tonight. And people praise you for your fastidious busyness and getting things done. And maybe even just listening to Paula, you might, maybe you'll find just a few minutes today to ask yourself what's driving that kind of busyness, that kind of mania. Are you in fact running from something? Because I, in my own life, I, I don't go busy. I withdraw. That's my defense. That's my coping strategy, just to ignore all the pain that's out there. Um, and we all have different coping strategies, but that may just be even one, one thing for you to take today as you move forward. Um, I want to go back to the idea of dying um, because this is another great story. One of the things that you said early on when we were hanging out was that Lost was the best television show ever. And I thought, my goodness, this is a this is a woman who is a bastion of wisdom, one of my favorite television shows. But that's how you described you described watching that show, and there was something there was something that you saw that was an invitation for you really to die. Yeah, there was only there have only been two times in my life when I have felt unquestionably called by God, and in retrospect, feel even more powerfully that it was a call of God than I did at the time. And the first time was in the final season of Lost. And yes, it was the best TV show of all time because Damon Lindelof and Carlton Cuse were amazing showrunners. And it's the last time they worked together on a show. But you get into the last season and there comes a point in which the protagonist, Jack, if you're a Lost fan, realizes he's been called by God um, to be the next Jacob. Um, And the next Jacob is, in fact, the Savior who is going to die. And so he recognized it as a call to die. You don't really quite understand this until the very final episode. But when I um, was was watching it that very first night, my uh, my wife was away at a retreat, and I just exploded in tears, which was unusual for me. And I sobbed and sobbed, and I couldn't stop. And I cried all the way through to dawn. Um, just there in the in the family room with my kneeling with my head buried in the couch and i i cried till dawn mm. because i knew at that point i'd been called to die that i needed to transition and i had convinced myself that i could survive without ending my life and it's interesting i still will tell you that i could have but my wife and children will tell you that they don't think I would have survived. I clearly was dealing with a lot of depression. 
but for me, um, it didn't matter anymore whether I, or not I could survive. It was a matter of having been called and was I going to accept the call of God or not? In that death process, you mentioned a little bit about evangelicalism, your role there um, being forced out within seven days. So the death wasn't just one moment. It was a series of moments. And then you and your son have recently talked about that, what I would describe in in the, the New York Times article as a almost a death and resurrection of sorts, if that's fair. I think it is fair. I, th- I was devastated. I thought, people have one of two options. This definitely is going to create cognitive dissonance for them. And so their option is either to say, oh, I must be wrong in what I think of what it means to be transgender, or I must have been wrong about Paul and his character. And I thought, well, okay, they'll recognize that they're wrong in their understanding of what it means to be transgender. Paul being your name before you transition. Being my name before I transition. When I heard that at first, I was like, is she talking about the Apostle (laughs) Paul? (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's who I was named for, by the way, was the Apostle Paul. Perfect. Um, And what shocked me was that um, no people decided they'd been wrong about my character. Hmm. And that was devastating to me. It's like, wait, wait, what? I mean, seriously? You think that I intended to deceive you? It, it, was, um, it was devastating. I probably knew five to 10,000 people in that world by name. And to date, I've heard from maybe 50 or 60 of them in a kind way, a mm. lot more in an unkind way. And it's been, um, that part of it never ends. I got a nasty email this morning from somebody. It just keeps on coming. It's the gift that keeps on yeah. giving. <laughs> so I lost almost oh all of those people. Ironically, I didn't lose hardly any of my non-evangelical friends, which um, was something that gave me great comfort because those people stayed with me. Also, my doctorate's in pastoral counseling. I lost no clients. All my clients stayed with me, including my evangelical clients, which still is a shock to me. Yeah. Which is interesting. The the, the counseling clients, these are people who have admitted that like I, I'm I'm suffering, I'm hurting, right. I have wounds. And in it's almost like, well, okay, so you have wounds too. Great. It's just you're one yeah. of us at this point now. Well, it, it was that way. And within a year, just about every last one of them, unprompted at some point or another, said, you know you're a better therapist now. Wow. Hmm. Well, I mean, there was no doubt about that because I wasn't spending 80% of my time denying the reality of who I was. Wow. <laughs> so you you talked about the gift that keeps on giving, which uh, is a <laughs> kind way of putting it. But I've been with you, and we've, we've, we've had meals together, we've spent time together, um, and one of the things that I've always appreciated is that when you speak about really being abandoned by all sorts of people, you t- you've told stories about seeing someone who doesn't know who you are, this is a person who's wounded you, the emails, the hate mail. Um, one of the things I've noticed is you'll oftentimes smile and crack a joke about it, which humor is always a great way of of dealing with pain in a healthy way. But I've also seen you at times where tears come to your eyes. And what I've not seen in you is anger and F them, this attitude. I'm sure it it comes and goes um, as it would with anyone. But help us understand how 
you've gotten to a place where what I experience is you allow the pain to hit you without swinging back. And that has been just, just watching you do that has been such an example for me. How, how, what's that process been like for you? You know, we Western people are always linear in our thinking. So when we um, first got all excited about the work of Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, we were excited about it because it seemed to be linear, that there was a definite um, linear passage through our grief, and it was denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance, that you would go through these five stages. But of course, anyone who works with those grieving knows that it's not linear, it's cyclical. Hmm. that you do go through those five stages and you go through them over and over and over. So there's denial and there's anger. It, it, you cannot avoid the stages. You will go through all of them. And, and what are the five stages? Anger, uh, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Okay. Stop and think about it. Denial is the first Anger is the second, actually. Anger is the second. Bargaining is the third. Then depression, then acceptance. Okay. So initially, you're just in denial about it all. And I still have that capacity. There are still times that I will cycle back into stages of denial about it. Just I'm kind of choosing to ignore that it happened. But once you break through that denial... You come to great anger. And then after that comes the bargaining where you're going to figure out how to somehow maybe hold on to a little bit of the past. And, and eventually you just have to let go and, and go through the depression of it all. For me, I think the most healing thing was being willing to look at it f- not at a micro level but at a macro level. That the way I was treated wasn't about me personally it's the way that the religious world treats those who challenge their mores, whether those mores are actually biblical or not. Mm. And then you can learn not to take it quite so personally. So you see it as it's not you, Reverend Dr. Paula Stone-Williams. This is now, you're coming up against a system. Right. Okay. It's and so tribal how did, behavior. How does that change the way you view the people then who are in that system? Um, I see them as members of a tribe. And we're all capable of doing things when we're in a group that we wouldn't do personally. You know, mm-hmm. when you take a look at the at the word sin in the book of Romans, most of the time you're looking at it, it's not talking about the sin that goes on inside my own little heart. It's talking about a cosmic, malevolent force. It's talking about what happened in Germany in the Third Reich. It's talking about what happened in the killing fields of Cambodia. It's our capacity to behave in tribes in ways that we would never behave as individuals. We get together with other people, and we create enemies that don't exist. We create scapegoats and drive them out of the camp because it's what tribes do. You know, the work of Edward O. Wilson has been so instructive on this. Wilson won two Pulitzer Prizes and talked about you social species just nine of them, it's E-U-S-O-C-I-A-L species, says what sets these apart is that all of these species have a division of labor. They all um, have a tribal gene where they will also sacrifice themselves for the sake of the tribe. 
but one of those species has evolved in a way that is not healthy for the species. It's that they are the species, an enemy comes into the camp, they unite, they'll sacrifice themselves for the sake of the tribe, the tribe goes on, life goes on. But the ninth species, unfortunately, believes that for the tribe to survive, it needs an enemy. Mm. And so where there is no enemy, they create one. And that is, in fact, what I've experienced. I believe that's what's happened in the church. You see it in all the desert religions, particularly. You see it in Christianity, in Islam, in Judaism. Those uh, desert religions are religions of scarcity. There's not enough to go around, so there's always a danger. And so we've evolved, unfortunately, as a species to believe that for our tribe to exist, it needs an enemy. And so I realize that's all that's going on in the church. It's tribal behavior, creating enemies that don't exist. And right now, that's the LGBTQ community. And particularly, since marriage equality, and they lost that battle, it's been turned to the T side of that. So in the fundamentalist and evangelical world right now, um, people like me are hated more than others. And the only thing that will stop that is for them to meet me. Right. Because people, people recognize this is not a category. This is not right. a, um, a, an, an idea. This is flesh and bone. This yeah. is a daughter of the Almighty. This is, yeah. You know, proximity promotes tolerance. Yeah. You know? And understanding. Yes. Yeah. The, yeah. I, I can't remember who said it. Uh, it wasn't me, but it, someone, I heard someone recently say, your enemy is the person whose story you haven't heard yet. Oh, that's so true. Yeah. And so yeah. It, it is. It's, it's just getting to know somebody else. It's as simple as that. So again, we talk about next steps all the time. I think this is actually, I, we talked about this several episodes ago with Ryan Taylor, uh, who was on the, the podcast of just sitting and hearing someone's story, coming with a desire to understand rather than oppose, which can be frightening and terrifying. And then you realize these are people who have moms and dads and siblings and funny stories and tragic stories. And but when you think about it, Michael, we were created that way. Mm-hmm. We were created as narrative beings. Yes. About, you know, we don't sleep without dreaming and nobody dreams in mathematical equations. We dream in stories. We're narrative-based creatures. Yes, yes. That's a great point. And your narrative is moving from living as a white male in this culture to now living as a female. Um, and, and you've spoken a little bit about the differences that you've experienced, which I found when you talked about that, I was like, oh my goodness, that you actually, through personal experience, have experienced what it is like to be a male and, uh, in your context, a powerful male and an influential male and living now as a female. So what what is... What has that been like? Yeah, one of my friends said to me not long ago, you are the patriarchy of the church being transformed before our eyes. Hmm. And I said, yeah, I don't think I asked for that. (laughs) But it's true. I feel like it is, in fact, true. I often say there's no way a well-educated, successful white American male can understand how much the culture is tilted in his favor. There's no way he can understand it because it's all he's ever known. There's no way a powerful white female can understand how much harder it is for her 
than it is for a comparable male because that's all she's ever known. But there is no question that the world is tilted in favor of well-educated, successful white males. One of the things I've discovered is that people no longer assume I have the knowledge they're looking for. In fact, the assumption is that I do not. So when I offer knowledge unsolicited, it's generally not well received. Let's put it that way. So I used to just jump right in. if like, well, I know the answer to that question. And now I'm not inclined to do so because I'm tired of people looking at me as if I have three heads. Wow. And so what, is that, what does that look like day to day? Just the assumption of, because what you're saying is, oh, you're a woman. You couldn't possibly know. It, well, yeah. It, what, um, one of the things that happens is you actually do kind of start losing confidence because no one wants to hear from you, so you start questioning yourself. Oh, well, maybe actually I don't know as much as I think I know. And so you see this with women everywhere. In fact, one of my frustrations in working with a world of women, and there aren't many. I mean, I really love working with women. But one of the frustrations is they don't empower one another. Hmm. Men will empower one another. If you think about it, men will get in huddles and slap each other in the butt and make sure the quarterback advances down the field. And wear tight pants. And wear tight <laughs> pants. And women will not do that. They will advance someone else's cause down the field. They'll work collaboratively to do that, but they don't advance their own. They don't huddle together. They don't empower one another. Hmm. And I think part of that is because they've not been taught to. And an entire culture tells them that their messages aren't worth being empowered. And it takes a long time to kill that monster. Yes. And when, when these conversations come up, this, my experience has been, for example, if you're going to speak about male privilege, you have men that become defensive. And I've asked people who've become defensive, why? Okay, let's, let's hit the pause button. Why are you defensive about this? And it's almost this moment of they, everything stops because they, they, they're not even fully aware. And I'm not even aware. I've been asking this question for literally months now. Why do we get angry when we talk about white privilege? Why do we get angry when we talk about male privilege? Why do we get angry when we talk about straight or Christian privilege? And so I'd love to ask you that question. From your perspective, why do you think people become angry and defensive when the topic of privilege comes up? I think we all would like to believe the myth that everything we have, we have because of our own merit. I don't think we want to accept that some people have a leg up in the world, that mm. some people have opportunities that others don't have. I became a rock and roll disc jockey at 16 years of age <laughs> at a commercial radio station in eastern Kentucky. I assumed everybody did. I was on television in 70 different markets around the United States as an on-air host. And some of that stuff's still in the air. And so I'll go to different cities. And if I'm up late at night, I'll see my previous self right there on camera, along with all the other men who were hosts of that show, only males. So I thought that it's because I was really good on television but I realized if I had been a female, I never would have been offered any of those positions in the first place. 
I mean, back when I started in television and radio, there were no female newscasters. There were no female reporters. I mean, I simply would not have had the kind of opportunities that I had. But I want to believe that I worked for all that myself because I did. I worked hard. And there's nothing wrong with having worked hard. It's just also important to understand that you begin with a leg up. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that makes you successful in radio is that you have a good voice. Well, that is actually not something that you chose. That's something that you received genetically. Same thing would be true of a model. They didn't get to choose their looks. That was determined genetically. From there on, they work hard. But they have to acknowledge that some of these things they were just given. Yeah. Well, that's a good, that's, that's a good insight. I like that. I had not thought of that, nor have I heard that response yet. So maybe now I can begin chewing on that one for yeah. a bit. Um, you, you, as people are listening, and even as I've, um, I've seen this conversation evolve within the church, one of the things that I continually hear is, well, what about what the Bible says? What about what the Bible says? And it's worth noting, the Bible has no commentary whatsoever with regard to our transgender friends. Zero. The Bible has scant commentary with regard to same-sex attraction. Uh, It actually doesn't say anything about same-sex attraction. It says something about same-sex behavior. Um, And even that becomes a very murky conversation the deeper you dive into it. And so I bring that up because you and I did an interview uh, several months ago now. We did it together on uh, Colorado Public Radio. And you quoted Stan Mitchell, who's a pastor in Nashville. And Stan said that he takes the Bible far too seriously to take it literally. And that statement can freak some people out. But help us understand what you mean by that. Because Again, when this conversation around our LGBTQIA friends arises, so many immediately run to the Bible um, and say, well, what, what, what about this? What about this? What about this? So what, help us understand what, what you, you mean when you quote Stan. Well, you know, I think there's even a parallel to it when it comes to what the Bible does or does not say about transgender people. Um, a lot of evangelicals and fundamentalists will quote Deuteronomy 22.5, which is that a man shouldn't wear the clothes of a woman. Um, but, of course, the convenient thing there is they can use that passage. But if you're going to use that passage, then you're also going to have to accept the other 612 laws of the Old Testament. So, yes. you know, the other thing they want to say is pre-law uh, in Genesis. It says God created the male and female. Yeah, but at last count, there were 42 different kinds of intersex conditions. So, in fact, God did not create them male and female. So that's just a reality. They want to have the Bible speak clearly as a constitutional rule book on everything. And I believe they take it in a way that it was never intended to be taken. They want a simple rule book. And so they treat it as though it is a simple rule book. They say, well, what the Bible says is clear. Well, the truth is what the Bible says is not clear. It is not a simple book. It is not a constitution. It is 66 books written by a plethora of people over a very long period of time. I do believe it's inspired by God. 
And I do believe it cannot be broken. That's what Jesus said about it. I'm not sure what that means, (laughs) but I agree that it cannot be broken. I think we actually have a perfect analogy in the United States right now that can help people understand. We have a Supreme Court that is split between originalists and non-originalists. we got to get a better name than non-originalists, by the way. But that's the language they use right now. The originalists believe that we must interpret the Constitution according to the knowledge of and the intent of those who wrote it. And so it is fixed in time to the understanding of those who wrote it. The non-originalists say, no, it's actually a living and breathing document, and we know things now that they did not know then. So the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms. Well, in that time, um, you could shoot a gun if you were really, really good twice in a minute. You could reload and shoot twice in a minute. Most people once in a minute. Well, what about assault rifles? Mm. Well, they didn't have the capacity to even think about the possibility of that. So do we only interpret according to the understanding of those at the time? Well, Christians will say the same of the Bible. We should only interpret according to its original meaning. We shouldn't see it shifting with the passage of time, which is, of course, what the originalists say of the Constitution. The non-originalists say, no, we have a lot more knowledge now than we had 250 years ago, and so we need to make changes accordingly. But you look at Scripture, and everyone says, no, 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 the Bible is a Constitution. It's a rule book. We must follow it according to the meaning of those who wrote it. Okay, if you're going to do that, then be consistent, and slavery is okay. And the earth is square, and... um, All the planets and the sun revolve around the earth. And a lot of other things the Bible says that over the passing of time, we've come to reject because we know better now. Mm -hmm. So if we're allowed to come to a greater understanding on issues like a geocentric universe or slavery, can't we also come to a better understanding on issues like LGBTQ issues? Particularly when we come to understand, as we do in the United States and in the Western world at this point, that these are people who are not mentally ill. They are people every bit as healthy as anyone else. They're every bit as good a parents, every bit as good a church leader, every bit as good a pastor, every bit as good anything they choose to be. There's no pathology in being gay. And the more the world comes to realize that, I have no question the evangelical church will come around on that just like they did on slavery. It's just whether it happens in 20 years or whether it happens in 100 years. So that's what I mean. You cannot take the Bible literally because it was not intended to be taken literally and not even fundamentalists take it literally. Right. That's what I was going to say. You're talking about the originalist reading. Right. There actually has to be denial that goes into reading the Bible that way because you can't divorce yourself from the culture in which you live Right. The time in which you live, that if you're taking the Bible literally and you're reading it on your iPhone, they're, they're, they're just that is going to influence uh, the way that you're looking at it because you're bringing your um, conversations to it. So even saying, let's bring the LGBTQ conversation to the Bible. The originalists were not having the conversation we're having, so it instantly just that begins to shift the way we look at the text. I think one of the things people don't understand is this particular view, this left-brain rational logical view, is actually only about 500 years old. 
it goes back to Descartes and Bacon, and particularly to John Locke, who greatly impacted the thinking of most evangelicals in America, that a rational, reasonable God created a reasonable creature who could understand a reasonable scripture written in a reasonable way. That was the modern age. You come now to a postmodern age where quantum physics tells us that the only ultimate reality is relationships, that objective truths is a dream, that if, in fact, truth is being interpreted by a human, it will be subjective, and it will be subjected to the perspectives of that particular human. And so you must, I think, still work toward truth, but it's a rigorous intersubjective truth. It's not the idea that there's some absolute truth out there, because if there is, as humans, we can't perceive it. So things are changing. Always. Is what that means, <laughs> yeah. Um, so here's an easy question for you. Uh, when What's interesting, and here's why I asked this. I recently had someone say to me, everything seems to be crumbling, foundations, uh, you know, understanding, certainties, just seem, everything seems to be in flux, and I need a place to come. They were speaking about here at Denver Community Church. I need a place to come where I just know things are solid. And the first thing that went through my mind was all of us exist in a particular time and in a particular culture as particular people. We would be fooling ourselves to believe we are not also evolving and changing with the very world in which we live. And so when you think about this change, when you think about not, not even, you know, what is Christianity like in 100 years? Because I don't know that anyone knows that answer. But what are, what are the things that you see evolving in the present, and where, what would be your guess for where that leads us going forward? I'm an optimist. Um, I'm reading uh, the book Hamilton right now, and I just read a history of uh, Benedict Arnold and George Washington. Uh, Washington gave his farewell address, which was the greatest speech he ever gave. Well, Jesus also had a farewell address. It was his very last time he was speaking to the public at large, 22nd chapter of Matthew. And it was the very final question he's ever asked. And it's asked by an honest reporter, if you will. Which of the laws is the greatest? And Jesus, there's no surprise in his answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. They expected that. You can see them shaking their heads. Yeah, okay. They began their services quoting that. But then he said, on this are all the law and the prophets based. And that's where Matthew tells us there was dead silence. I mean, it's like a press conference with dead silence. <laughs> it, it was devastating. Incredibly simple, but not easy. Well, I believe that's where our ultimate reality lies. That love is the foundation on which it all rests. Mm. Loving God, loving your neighbor. Even quantum physics would not disagree with that. If the only ultimate reality is relationships, then the strongest relationships are the most important. The strongest relationships in humans are always based on love. And when I look at the trajectory of human history, yes, there's always atrocity. But on the whole, there's less now than there was 2,000 years ago or 1,000 years ago or even 500 years ago. 
I think we're making little tiny bits of progress. I think that if we can move in the direction of love, that there is hope. Hmm. That Jesus knew a thing or two, didn't he? I think it's possible. Paula, help us understand there. This conversation for so many people, when I say this conversation, around LGBTQ, for so many people, continues to feel like an idea, continues to feel like um, something that's foreign to them because because there's uh, there's so many ideas being thrown out, books being written, ideas out there. What would you say as people continue to move forward in their journey? What, what are the things that would be helpful for people to keep in mind with regard not just to the LGBTQ community, but to the other. What are some helpful things people can do to begin to engage the other, hear the other, understand the other? I think the most important thing we can do is get in close proximity to other. If you don't know anybody who's a Muslim, this is a problem. If you don't Mm. know anybody who's a person of color, this is a problem. I think it's only by getting in close proximity. It's by relationship. I believe that by entering into a relationship with those not like us, wherever we find them, whatever the story, that for us is going to make us more human. And ultimately, I think as Christians, it's going to make us more like Jesus. Who, being in very nature God, didn't stay up there, using the three-tiered universe term, (laughs) up there. Yep. Um, But that is... I think as we're listening today, you've heard throughout several interviews now about relationships. And we ought to, as Paula just pointed out, as Christians especially, this ought to be for us so often our next logical step. Because God didn't remain far away, far off, up there, however you want to say it, as this idea or this force or this energy or this divine flow, however you want to say it. Instead, he put on skin and bone and walked around with us, and that's the relationship. So when we speak confidently about God knows how we feel, that's actually true. This is what the biblical writers are getting after with Jesus, and this is what you're calling us to. Is not just, oh, it's good to know people, but really what you're saying from a Christian perspective is just just do what Jesus did. Just get in uncomfortable places and hang out with people that you don't know. And Jesus didn't have boundaries. He hung out with the, the, the Pharisees and the religious who hated the sinners, and he hung out with the sinners who hated the Pharisees. Well, I really have always taken comfort. People say, why are you a Christian? Um, because it's the only meta narrative that is written from the perspective of the loser, the victim, mm. the scapegoat, but also because it's the only religion where God chooses to come to earth and enter into relationship with us. Mm. I believe the main reason that God came to earth to live among us was to show solidarity with us in our suffering because this is not an easy life for anyone. And to know that someone went before us and goes next to us in the midst of our suffering, that's the God I want to follow, Mm. the one who walks alongside. Oh, beautiful. Thank you for being being with us today. Thanks for being on the podcast. Where can people find you? I know you have an online presence. So where is that? Yep. Paula Stone Williams.com. 
And I'm going to be pastoring a new church, Left Hand Community Church, up in Boulder County, Colorado, that DCC, Denver Community Church, and Highlands, and Forefront Church in New York City are all sponsoring. And so uh, come the first of the year, you'll be able to find me there, too. Great. And why, why, real quickly, why, do you, why is the church called Left Hand Church? Because uh, Left Hand Canyon and Left Hand Creek are there in Boulder County, and they're named after Chief Niwot, which translated means left hand, who was actually killed in the Sand Creek Massacre. Killed because he dared to care about and enter into relationship with the white people who came to him. Mm, beautiful. Well, thank you for being on the podcast, friend. Oh, it's my pleasure. And that is all for today. Thank you for joining with us on the Changing Faith podcast. Again, if you have any questions, you can email me. You can also find Paula online, as she just mentioned. As always, much love and peace be with you.